This morning we continue our series in the book of Acts, kind of, where I'll be in Acts 10 briefly, but we'll also be in Philippians 3, so you can stick your thumbs in two different spots. We'll also have uh, the slides up here on the screen. We're continuing our series, uh, the book of Acts part 2, which focuses on the persecution of the early church. And in this series, what we're seeing uh, and encouraged by is how uh, the early church is empowered by God and how his power is still on display, even though they're going through persecution. We're also witnesses to the perseverance of the early church, that no matter what they were going through, they continued to press on in spreading the gospel. And we need this encouragement And we need this challenge, because if you sit here today with your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the same call, the same purpose on your life as they did, and that is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Now, last week we saw God open the apostle Peter's eyes so that Peter may take the gospel to the Gentiles, and that was anyone who was not Jewish. And he needed his eyes to open because Jewish Christians had some prejudice against Gentiles. And so God gave Peter a vision to cement in his heart the words that he already heard of Jesus, that all people were deserving of the gospel. And so after this vision, he went to the Gentiles and he preached the good news and the power of God was displayed, the Holy Spirit poured out, people were filled with joy and came into the knowledge of who Christ was, lives, and the world was changed forever. Now I want you to hear, because I didn't read these last week, the exact words that Jesus, that Peter preached to them. Starting in Acts chapter 10, verse 37. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. So does anybody notice a common thread through Peter's gospel presentation? He said, Jesus comes with power, came with power. Jesus did good and healed people. Jesus was put to death. Jesus was raised on the third day. Jesus met with his followers. Jesus commanded them to preach. Jesus will one day judge all the earth. All the Old Testament prophets, all, they all talked about this, about Jesus. And then finally, Peter says, forgiveness is found in Jesus alone. Can anybody tell me what the common thread there is? Jesus. The name of Jesus, over and over, every point that he made about the gospel was focused on Jesus, who he was, who he is, who he will be, and everything that he did. That was the focus of the gospel. And this is 
the common thread of the gospel message uh, that should bring you joy this morning, the reason that we can start off our service with joy to the world, Jesus. John Piper said that Christ is the gospel. His person, his work, and his resurrection is the message that brings us salvation and hope, period. Tim Keller says the gospel is the story of Jesus, what he said and did, and how he died and rose again, and how it changes everything. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is not just the center of the gospel, he is the gospel. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians, the other place that we are today. And he talks about the joy that Jesus brings him, which is ironic because if you know the book of Philippians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi from where? From jail. He is in prison. And he's writing about the joy that Christ and the gospel brings him. Now, maybe you are a better person than I, but I tell you right now that if I was in jail writing a letter, I doubt that joy would be the topic of my letter. And when you sit here and think about it, and don't just read the Bible like a newspaper, but you really sit there and you ponder it, you're like, how can this man have joy as he's sitting in prison, probably fresh from a beating? And it's simple. He spells this out in Philippians. It's because he understood who Christ was. And Christ changed everything. Do you understand who Christ is in your life this morning? Do you understand what Christ has done? Are you you confident in your standing before God when you breathe your last breath? And is that confidence based in you or is it based in Christ? I pose these questions because I find a high number of people in my times as a pastor, and I find a pattern in my own life, that when I do not have joy, no matter what's going on, it's because my eyes are not fixed on Jesus. When I do not have joy in my past hurts and my past pain, when I cannot find joy in my present sin, yes, I said joy and sin, or in my sufferings, when I cannot find joy, even though I don't know what's coming down the road, it's because my eyes are not on Jesus. The joy of Christ's salvation should be present even in the darkest places. It doesn't mean you're happy-go-lucky, high-fiving people on a Sunday morning because you're suffering or out of a job. What it means is it is a stabilizing voice, uh, force in your life, a foundation on which you walk no matter what is going on outside of you or in you. Do you hear me this morning, church? And without this understanding of who Christ is and the joy that comes from it, your obedience as a Christian will be limited. Your ability to receive his love and give his love will be stifled. Your confidence will be shaky, and your courage to carry out his purpose for your life will be minimal. And your happiness will be dependent upon your circumstances and and you having great relationships with everybody and things going good instead of Christ. 
And so I think this morning I want us to use the words of Paul to remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say just the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's nothing that can be added to it. And often I find that's why we miss and we take our eyes off of Jesus because we're trying to add things to his gospel. In fact, in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, he goes, I'm excited to write the gospel to you, and it's a safe or a safeguard for you. In other words, if you understand these things about Jesus, it will protect your heart against looking to anything else for salvation in your life, besides fixing your eyes on Jesus, like we sang today. Now after this, he goes on to the problem, the reason he's, he's setting up this safeguard. He goes into verse 2, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, for we are the circumcision, in verse 3, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, before we go on any further, I want to apologize to all of you who already know what's coming. It's important for us to understand why circumcision was such a cutting issue in the church. Man, you guys are dead this morning. I laid that one out there. Wake it up. Wake it up. Not even a moan. I say it every time I talk about circumcision. Why are you shocked? In fact, I cut out about five jokes this time. I really trimmed down. All right. Seriously, in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to give a little background. This is a little off subject here, uh, but I want to give some background because not everybody understands circumcision. We read about this. And especially if you like go to read the Bible for the first time, you start in Genesis and you get to the circumcision, you're like, what is going on in here? I know, I'm sorry, I heard you. (laughs) I heard you, that was funny. I didn't even forget about kids being in the age here. In the book of Genesis, God said to Abraham, look, you and your wife, who was barren at the time, couldn't have kids, you guys are going to have a child. You're going to have a son. You're not going to just have one son. So many kids are going to come from you that they'll be countless. He says, like the sand of the sea, stars in the sky, countless. We talked about this when we studied his life earlier this year, Abraham's life. And he said, not only are you going to have so many kids, the entire world is going to be blessed by them, which we now know was the birth of Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel. Now, when God told Abraham all this, he said, as a sign of my covenant, as a a sign of my commitment to you, I want you and all of the men of your household to be circumcised. And this was a big ask. Because Abraham was 99 years old. He wasn't eight days. He was 99. 
I'd be like, God, can we settle on a tattoo? Matching uniforms, like, right? People in today's church complain about having to go to a church membership class. But I think it's a fair question. I mean, really, of all the things, circumcision. After all, like, no one else would even see it. Like, it's not a visible thing. Out from the outside, no one would be able to tell. I mean, why would God not choose some kind of other mark on the body? Something that could just be easily seen by everybody like a sigh. I believe God chose this mark because it reminded man in a way that he would never forget that every part of him belonged to God. That even in the most intimate moments, the things that were never seen by others, the part that goes behind closed doors, that that part of your life must belong to God as well. And it's a good reminder for us because this commitment does not change in the New Testament. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that means that every part of your life belongs to him. Everything. You cannot hold back any part of your life from God and still call him Lord. You're the Lord until you submit everything to his word. It's a good question for you to ask this morning. Does every part of your life belong to God? It's even a better prayer to pray to say, God, is there any part of my life that does not belong to you? Now, if circumcision, with this background, I hope that helps a little understanding, as a, an important reminder of our relationship with God, why would Paul be so angry to the point he would call certain people dogs? And listen, I, I, we've got dog lovers in here, we've got dog lovers in here, we've got dog lovers, right? This, dogs, when they talked about dogs in the New Testament, they weren't like the cute little puppies we have today. These were not pets. They were dangerous Animals that roamed around, causing all kinds of problems. And so he was talking about, he called these people that were coming to the church dogs. It's a huge insult, nasty insult. And what he was referring to was a group of people called the Judaizers. And they were these Jewish men who had been coming into the Philippian church, teaching that every Gentile, every non-Jew, had to get circumcised to really be saved. That these Gentiles were not really followers of Jesus Christ unless they got circumcised. That they were not at the level of, of commitment that these Jewish men, these Judaizers were, unless they had been living according to every aspect of Jewish law. And that these Christians needed these Jewish men to come in and show them the way to truly find Christ. Paul says, no. He says, no. These men are not teachers, they're dogs. They're dogs. He goes, you don't need to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. Because we, the church, he says, are the circumcision, which is a really weird statement. Like never have I been in a church where you go around pronouncing that we are the circumcision. 
The first time you all came here, if the sign outside said Circumcision Christian Church, I guarantee you most of you would not have stepped in this door. And if you would have, yeah, I wouldn't want to, yeah, I don't want to know. But if you can get past the weirdness, you can catch the, there's a powerful truth that Paul is trying to remind the Philippian church. And Paul, in Romans 2, Romans 2, no, it's Romans 2. In fact, Paul writes that circumcision is of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes what we don't understand, if you're new to the Bible, is there are things that God writes in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. That's who the Old Testament's about. And in the New, in the Old, in the New Testament, he's writing to the church. And though there are certain principles that cross from one to another, sometimes when we do not understand the context of what we read, we get stuck in Old Testament points and rules and apply them to us blindly in the New Testament. And Paul's saying, look, no, no, in the New Testament... We are circumcised on our heart. In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes and he takes root in our hearts, in our lives. And he marks us, showing that we are saved. Now, it doesn't look the same way. We don't have a problem with Judaizers in the church. But I'll tell you, if you've come across anyone who tells you you have to go to a, a particular person to find and have a relationship with Jesus or go through anyone, they're no better than these men. No better. Even if they have good intentions. Romans 3.23 says, We have all sinned, every last man, woman, and child fallen sin, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of who? Of God. Okay, everyone. People who've grown up in the Catholic faith, they, they're, look to, they're used to looking to the Pope as this representation of Christ or Mother Teresa. And then they're used to going to uh, priests to confess their sins. Romans 3 tells us that there's no one righteous before God. No one. And we can be tempted if you're Catholic or even Protestants now, especially with celebrity pastors who are all across social media and the web, we can be tempted to lift people up and put them on these pedestals. Like these are the people that will bring me closer to God. Well, maybe they can teach you some things about God. Maybe they can walk alongside with you. But through Jesus Christ, he is the only one that brings you to God. Jesus Christ alone. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's good to look at teachers of the Bible, to have respect for them and to walk with them. But they struggle with sin just the same as you. They put on their pants, as someone once told me, one leg at a time, just the same as you. There's others that will teach that they have the secret sauce to salvation, that there's extra things that you have to happen you got to worship a certain way, or you, you got to have certain spiritual gifts. I remember the, learning this in college. You have to look like this. You have to act like this. And Paul says that people who teach these things, unless they are in Scripture, a command that God is calling you to do, are nothing but dogs perverting the gospel.
Paul goes on in verses 4 through 6, and he goes, he goes, listen. He goes, if anyone has right to say, man, if anyone has right to say, man, I am worthy of God, Paul's like, it's me. It's me. Verses 4 through 6, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he goes, I have more. He goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. He's like, man, I got the letterman's jacket when it comes to being religious. I got the trophies lining the wall. He goes, in every way, by birth and upbringing and conviction, he goes, man, I was the perfect four-star Jew. Because if Judaism worked, if it was the way, Paul was there. He was right with God. But in verse 7, he points out the exact opposite. He says this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, all the things I just listed, in other words, he goes, I counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, being Jewish can never save me. The law could never save me. None of them could make me righteous before God. And this is important because religious activity is one of the most, in my experience, common substitutes for genuine salvation. It's almost like it's an attempt to pay off God. And I noticed this a lot since I moved to the Northeast. Like store owners who would pay off the mob, you know, to protect them and not cause them trouble. Like with our religious act, activity, we keep God happy with us and on our side. I, you know, we're going to go to church, you know, and sometimes more than Christmas and Easter. Or we're going to put a little money in the plate or in the box. We're going to take communion. We're going to make sure our kids go to church, even if we don't. We're going to be a good standing member in our church. We're going to serve here or there. None of it, not a single thing brings us to salvation. Now, religion can change our behavior, but it can't change our heart. We can't put stock in it when it comes to our relationship with God. He goes on to say this in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. by saying that he considers everything to be a loss. Paul doesn't mean like his whole Jewish upbringing, the law and everything were evil, but his, listen to this, his attitude toward them was evil. Just like going to church, it's not wrong. It's good. Glad you're here. Volunteering or serving, giving money, it's not bad, it's good. But the reason that we do them or do not do them is what makes them right or wrong. You can do the right thing and have the wrong heart. You see, at his conversion, Paul had to drop the notion that him and God were partners. They were a tag team for salvation. If you sit here today, your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not partners with God. 
Your, your salvation is not a matter, well, God did his part, and then I did mine. And somehow this idea has been passed down. Now, I don't know how, but it's there, that if the, 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 the sin outweighs the good, and this is why we want to do good things, if the sin outweighs the good, if the bad outweighs the good, that's what sends us to hell. But we have to understand it is not the amount of sin that is the problem. It's the existence of sin that is the problem. And, and nothing you can do can remove the existence of sin. Like, I, one of my favorite illustrations, I've done this before. Evan, will you hand me that box of goodies I have? Thanks, buddy. Okay, you football fans, like get past like that this is a Seahawks cup. I know that's going to ruin it for some of you, right? Like if my life is like uh, a glass of nice pure water, purified Wellesley Farms water from BJ's, which I'm sure is pure right from the rivers of the mountain. Like if this is my life and I drink this, right? Sin would be like this. This is what sin is. Okay? Steve, would you take a drink of this for me? No, Steve doesn't want to drink. Why? Because it's polluted. Now, what if I did this, Steve? I'm going to put up here, like, a Christian, you know, uh, I'm going to put up here, let's see, my trophy. I'm going to put my number one dad. I'm going to put $20, which is fake, so don't steal it. I'm going to put another trophy. I'm going to put... Uh, my family up here, and then ooh, I'm going to even take this, and I'm like, put the American flag right here, and the Christian flag. Okay, I'm going to put all these things here. Look at that. So nice, right? Nice family picture, good-looking son there. I'm not saying that just because he's sitting here, or he looks like me. All right, look at all this. Okay, this is better. Now, Steve, now I want you to have a drink. Will you take a drink now? No. Why? Because no matter how much I dress it up, it doesn't change the fact of what is in the inside. No matter what I do, no matter what I add, it does not change what is on the inside. Paul says, everything I've done, all of it, it's useless. It is garbage because none of it changes the contents of what's on the inside. Are you with me, church? In the same way, wherever you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much money you got in the bank, what things you have achieved, how talented you are, none of it, how much volunteer work you've done, how many people you've said, none of it, whatever list you look to, none of it changes what's on the inside. None of it. It can't take it away. Now, there's nothing wrong with good looks. There's nothing wrong with my cute little, you know, my doggy picture of my kids, my, my trophies. Nothing wrong with it, but they have to be put in their place. And this is good for a couple reasons to realize this. is because, one, it prevents you from ever having pride about your place versus somebody else's. 
Because the same pollution in your heart is in there. The, on the flip side, it prevents you from ever lifting people up on pedestals and going, man, God must love them more than they love me because look how pretty their outside is. Because at the end of the day, the Bible still teaches, no matter how pretty it is on the outside, no matter how many awards, it's, uh, awards or things or achievements, recognition, it's the inside, the heart that is still dirty. Good works do not help us earn salvation. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, 8 through 10 for, by work, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when you come to this place and this realization sits not just in your head and your heart, you have no choice but to finally figure, I, have no, I can't save in myself. What, where do I turn? Verse 9. Verse 9. He says, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says his hope is what he found in Jesus, not himself. So he's never hopeless and he's never hopeful in himself. He never finds those things when he looks in the mirror. He only looks to Christ. That's where he finds hope because Christ is unchanging. And the work that he did. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, one of the, maybe the greatest verse of the God, one single verse of the gospel in the, the, the New Testament. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our confidence is in Jesus alone. That's why we have to set our eyes on him. That's the only place to look. And when our confidence is in him, when we're done looking in the mirror and we're looking to him, we don't have to hope that we are forgiven. Because our standing with God has zero to do with us. But at the end of the day, and the reason I, I preach a message like this, even though I preach messages like this a lot, is none of it matters if you don't believe it. You hear me? None of this, everything I'm saying, it does not matter if you do not believe it here. None of it matters. Like, we all grew up learning one plus one is two. But just because one plus one is true, it doesn't, that doesn't make a difference if you don't believe that it's true. And, and if you went through your life not believing one plus one is two, it would mess your life up. Like, I don't even know how you would function in society. You'd be a total wreck if you did not get this concept. Some of you are like, maybe that's why my finances are a wreck. <laughs> but in the same way, if you do not believe that, that Jesus himself equals salvation, that faith in what he does, you can't function as a Christian. You cannot experience peace. You cannot experience joy. 
You cannot experience hope. You can't walk in perseverance and in his purpose. You will be fearful, full of insecurity, living in regret on uneven ground. Some of you here today, you, you may believe that God created everything, right? You may believe that your sin separates you from a holy God. Okay, you can believe that Jesus died on the cross, right? That he rose three days later. You, you can even pray to, pray to prayer, right? To ask him, to tell him, I'm, I'm, I want you Lord of my life. I, I believe you're where I'm putting my faith. And you may still sit here and not feel saved. One of the biggest mistakes a Christian can make is to base your relationship with God and the status of how you're doing on your feelings. Feelings lie to you. They lie to you. Have you ever felt a certain way about a situation because you understood it one way, even though it was not that way, it was another way? The truth did not change. But you still have those feelings because you were believing it was one way. And so this is what I talk to people. I tell people who, who come to me with this struggle. And I'll say this. I say, okay, look. Do you believe, and I'll walk them through the gospel, your sin separates you from God, that Jesus died and rose again, right? I'll walk them through all of it. Yes, yes, yes. And I'll say, have you, have you prayed and talked to God and said, Lord, I repent of my sins, of being Lord of my own life, and, and I want to follow you the rest of my days. Not that the Bible says you have to pray a certain prayer to find Jesus, but with that said, praying is a great way to start a relationship with, with God. I'll say, have you done these things? They'll be like, yes. I go, okay. Then you have a problem. And, and we all deal with these problems. Your eyes are on your feelings and yourself, and they're not on Christ. And I say, you have to make a choice. Where is your faith going to be in your life? Is it in Christ, or is it in yourself? And you've heard me give this example before. Like, I want you to imagine a very long, narrow beam, very high up. And then on this narrow, tall beam, way high up in the air, there's, there's three people on it. And the first person on, on it is, is named Fact. The second person on it is named Faith. And then the third person on it is named Feeling. And we are the person of faith. In other words, where we put our faith. And, and if we're on a tall beam, and as scary as it can be, especially if you don't like heights like me, as long as you keep your eyes on fact, then you're not going to lose your balance. Your eyes are on him. But what's the moment when you turn around to look at your feelings? You get uneven automatically. And that is when you fall. And so in every moment of your life where the doubt and the fear sets in, you have a choice in that moment. You either fix your eyes on Jesus, the fact, or you're going to fix it on your feelings. And in every situation, that will depend whether you remain steady or if you fall. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is we try to, 
We try to feel our way into beliefs. I want to feel it. Now, don't get me wrong. Faith is not feeling free. But we don't start with feelings. We start with the faith. And as we continue to lock eyes on him, the feelings of assurance and of his peace will come. Even if it means we have to go back to him like a hundred times a day. You ever prayed a prayer once? God, help me keep your eyes on you. And then like you think just, law, you should be just healed of all things. No, it don't work that way. Now, sometimes it can. But sometimes it's in the process of sanctification, it is a long struggle of turning back to God's word over and over and over and over again to combat your feelings and to focus on the faith of Christ. Because I tell you right now, the enemy loves to exploit your feelings, loves to plant fear and doubt, loves to stoke anger and skepticism and bitterness and all the ugly stuff. And the only way you're going to overcome those things is is you're going to keep your eyes on Christ and his word. For example, some of you, like even today, you look, you're still looking like, and I've talked to people about this, they're like, I don't remember the moment in my timeline where, where I actually sat down and prayed that prayer. Like, they, they're like, where's that moment? And I tell them the same thing. I said, look, do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Has forgiven you of your sins, died and rose again. Oh, yeah. I said, then here is your moment. Your moment happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's the moment of your salvation. That's the moment that you live in. And so I, I pray this morning, that's what you walk in. And there, here's one final thing I want you to look at. Because you're going to walk in it and you're still going to fail you're still going to sin, and that's going to be tempted when you're going to start looking back in your feelings. Not that we shouldn't feel regret and conviction for our sin, right? That's the point of repentance, is changing the way you live, but it shouldn't own your heart. Your joy in the Lord shouldn't be dependent on it. We read in Hebrews that in, in, the, in, in uh, the hall of, of faith, when it talks about Abraham, it says this. It says, faith was credited to Abraham as, anybody know? Righteousness. It means because he had faith and trusted God, he was made right with God. Now, here's the cool thing. This was not said of him before he got circumcised. I mean, after he got circumcised. It was said of him before he got circumcised. When God said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to get circumcised. You know, after the shock of that, probably, he, he, he said, I believe God. You see, God knew what was in Abraham's heart, even though Abraham had not carried it out yet. In the same way, God knows what's in your heart, even though you don't always carry it out. I don't always carry it out. He sees the direction that we want to head and are working to head. Because I will say, obedience is a sign of salvation. It's, it's, you will see obedience. You will see a desire in somebody's life to become like Christ. Some move faster, some move slower, some fall backwards and then get back up. But you will see that desire in that heart because God is the Lord of their life. But that failure is not the foundation for their status with God. It's what he did upon the cross. And so... My goal for this message and my hope for you, my hope for me, and it's different for all of us, is wherever in your life this week your eyes are not on him, they're on yourself, you will feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit 
tapping you and saying you're looking the wrong direction. You will ask God in those moments to say, Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you. You will take the time and the effort to go into his scriptures and you will find the verses that talk about this and you'll start to speak them into your life so that that is the voice that you're listening to. That you may become like Paul, who was, though he was in prison, though he literally jailed and murdered Christians before finding Christ, though he was a man who failed all the time, like he said, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do what I should do, his eyes were on Jesus, focused on his wonderful face. And for, for him, the things of the world, they grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen, church? Amen.